an interview with David French about red flag laws in the wake of the Buffalo Massacre. Plus, an ATF report shows huge growth in the gun industry. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. I feel like when I do this intro every week, it gets faster, but uh, but I guess I've got it down pretty well. Um, uh, this week, we have a uh, guest, David French from The Dispatch. Uh, the, the French. The, by the way, David, have you seen The French Dispatch? No. The movie. No, I, 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 like, I heard there's no superheroes in it, nor is there any Will Ferrell. So I just, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's a uh, it's a movie about uh, sort of journalism uh, <laughs> and it's called The French Dispatch. So I just kind of I saw it. I, I liked it. It's very well. Oh, yeah? Anderson, of course. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, but I mean, I certainly thought of you while I was watching the movie. Um, anyway, uh don't you have don't you have a newsletter called the French Dispatch? No, it's the French Press. It is part oh, of the Dispatch. That's close, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's French, yeah, the Press, French Press newsletter in the, in the Dispatch. Yeah, you should sue them. That's, <laughs> oh, clearly. That's what I, I mean. Think. Come on, that's some copyright. I should get fifty percent of the box office. Yeah, although I feel like uh, you'd end up having to pay because I don't think that movie actually did very well at the box <laughs> office. But uh, but um, anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the I'm show. I'm going to check that. I'm going to live check that right now. You should. Um, you, I mean, you should get a cut. That's uh, it's like a stolen identity. Almost. Worldwide, worldwide box office, forty six million dollars. I mean, yeah. you know, half of that's twenty three million. That's that's on a budget of what though? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't because that movie had a lot of there's a lot of famous people in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Owen Wilson, I have no idea. Uh, Bill Murray. It's it's very good. I, I highly recommend it. This is. This has turned into a, a movie podcast, <laughs> but uh, I just uh, I meant to ask you that when I saw the movie, because, yeah, I mean, definitely some uh, impersonating of, of your <laughs> intellectual property of your name. I know it's just unacceptable. Is that you're a lawyer? That's that's a good case, right? You can <laughs> no, not really. But <laughs> we can pretend. Uh, but uh, yes. Anyway, back to the much more serious topic at hand that, that we're going to cover today, um, which is the, the Buffalo Massacre, the, what happened in Buffalo uh, just recently here where, where 10, um, 10 people were murdered by a uh, white supremacist who uh, intentionally targeted a black uh, a grocery store in a black area and you know left behind a, a manifesto and so forth. But I think one of the, the key things that I want to look at today and the reason that I had you on the show is the his history leading up mm -hmm. to this event, uh, because there were warning signs. There were yeah. uh, red flags, as there so and, often is when you're talking about yeah. a mass shooter. So so I wanted to bring you on because that this is an area that you've obviously spoken out about um, repeatedly. Uh, over the course of your career, uh, you know, you are somebody who owns firearms and mm -hmm. and is, uh, you know, a, a, a supporter of the Second Amendment, but uh, also somebody who has advocated for red flag laws, which are obviously fairly controversial, at least in the political mm -hmm. uh, realm. And uh, so uh, here's an example where, you know, I think we can talk a little bit more in depth about these policies 
what they do, uh, how they work, and uh, you know what happened in this case. So why don't you just start us off with, with a little bit on um, how these laws actually are meant yeah. to work. Well, the way they're meant to work is they're supposed to fill a hole in the law, essentially, because you know presently we know that a felon cannot possess a, a weapon. You know, it can't possess a gun. And then there are certain types of mental health adjudications that can result in a deprivation of your right to own a gun. So, but there is a big range between someone who's a felon and a, a felon and somebody who's actually gone through the kind of adjudication that results in, or the kind of state mental health process that results in the deprivation of an ability to own a, a, a weapon where there are people who are quite disturbed and exhibit that they're disturbed, but either they don't have, they don't tip all the way over into the kind, the level of, of mental illness that would lead to a kind of adjudication that can bar access to a weapon, or quite frankly, the process of a mental health adjudication is so opaque. And so, um, I mean, if I ask, even the most well-informed person in my neighborhood, how do you involuntarily commit a person in Tennessee? They have no clue. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how to do this. And so, you know, one of the purposes of a, a, of a red flag law is to say, okay, somebody is manifesting threatening behavior. Somebody is manifesting that they're unbalanced. Somebody is engaging in violent ideation or suicidal ideation. And we just want to press pause on their ability to possess a weapon while we either begin the, you know, a, a mental health adjudication or determine the applicability of criminal law to their behavior. And one of the reasons for the ideas for these laws is that if you go back through the history of mass shootings, time and time again, you will find evidence of prior um you know, uh, uh, you'll find evidence of prior ideation around uh, mass killing. You'll find prior existence of threatening types of communications, but things that don't necessarily arise to the level of criminal of a criminal act. But the person is sort of radiating that they're dangerous. And people say, why couldn't we do anything? Well, the answer to why we couldn't do anything is that you know, in particular, the mental health aspect of the American system is frankly just broken and opaque. And so this and this gives uh, the ability to press pause. And, you know, in this circumstance with the shooter in Buffalo, this should have been exactly the kind of situation for which red flag laws were drafted because he had issued right. a threatening communications about his school um, he was actually even taken into custody. Well, either taken into yeah. custody or went with the police, investigated by the police. And that's the idea that is exactly the paradigm for this kind of law. And it wasn't applied, it, even though it exists in New York, it wasn't yeah. applied. In yeah, the so that, that's, history. that's the key point here, right? Is that this, this shooter in Buffalo, I mean, first of all, you're correct. A lot of these guys who carry out these sorts of, you know, horrific, attacks uh, do exhibit some warning signs beforehand and rather serious ones in most cases. You saw it in 
Parkland, uh, where there were that shooter had made a number of threats. He'd also committed, uh, you know, domestic violence against his his mother at certain points. He'd uh, attempted suicide. There, you know, the, the, there were a lot of things that that could have. I time, yeah. Uh, you know, so, where an intervention could have kept him from being able to at least legally buy guns, even without the red flag law uh, in place. Uh, although Florida did pass one after that incident. Um, you saw with the Aurora, uh, Colorado theater shooter yeah. as well. Um, he had met with a psychiatrist on, on campus and expressed homicidal thoughts. And, uh, but apparently was the psychiatrist didn't, uh, believe it was specific enough threat to lead to, um, involuntary commitment in, in that state. Um, and then yes, the Buffalo here, we had this shooter, describe um the a threat towards or a desire to kill himself or others to a teacher at his school last mm -hmm. year in june he was taken by police to a mental health facility where he was uh, examined over the course of a day and a half apparently in this facility and then released um without being involuntarily i mean i guess there's some uh, still not a lot of detail as to why that doesn't qualify as involuntarily involuntary commitment. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps he had agreed to do this on a voluntary basis before being released. Um, but you're right. He didn't, he, nobody in that chain had initiated a extreme risk protection order as the, the sort of the technical term for a red flag yep. um, uh, order. And uh, in New York, anyone, really in that group could have the yeah. school, the police, the uh, prosecutors can do it in New York. And so can uh, family members, if we plan, at least parents can. And uh, nobody did. And and so a few months later, he was able to buy the gun that he uh, ended up using in this attack, uh, which would not have been possible if he had been subject to one of these orders. Uh, now, I guess uh, in your opinion, based on those facts, we don't, you know, because nobody actually went through the process, we don't know for sure that he would have been, uh, um, it, you know, that an order would have been issued against him. So I want to get your take on it. Do you, is this, it seems that you're saying this is highly a likely, where it, it highly likely because the, the burden of proof of getting, um, an order in New York is not, it's, you know, um, is not incredibly difficult to meet. And the pattern here is consistent with the kind of behavior manifested by other mass shooters. And, and so, you know, the, the, one of the best things that I, I would urge people to, to go and read this document, and that this is um, Governor Doug Ducey uh, after the, of Arizona, Republican governor of Arizona, after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, um, commissioned a report uh, for a, uh, essentially a school safety program for Arizona. And so what he did is he went through his, the, the report went through every major school shooting. And now we know this was a supermarket shooting, not a school shooting, but the deadliest school shooting of the last 20 years from Virginia Tech to Sandy Hook, to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, to Columbine, to Umpqua Community College, um, and looked at whether one of these red flag type laws could have been applicable. And it could have been applicable in every single one of them. 
under a conventional drafting of a red flag law. And so I do think that um, under the, you know, under the, the way these laws are drafted, it fits within the scope of the law. Now, the problem you have is any law is only as good as its enforcement. Uh, so, you know, for example, we've seen people who under existing law should not have been able to purchase a gun, yet we're permitted to able to per, we're, we're allowed to purchase a gun and went on and committed a mass shooting. I, I believe yeah. it's the Sutherland, Sutherland Springs, Springs. Yeah. is one of the most notable of these. And so, you know, you can have a background check system. And if the background check system fails, um, then, you know, it, right. it, 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 if it's only, you know, these laws have to be enforced by human beings and the human beings have to be educated and competent. And, and, and one thing that, I think is that, that is why you think that there wasn't uh, an ERPO issued in this, in this incident where they're just, uh, do you think it was a lack of knowledge on the part of the police or school administrators or, or maybe a cultural, it would uh, you know, this was, this was a small town in New York yeah. where maybe they don't look at uh, the red flag laws and we'll get into some of the critiques in a little bit, but red yeah. flag laws are controversial. They are, um, you know, not looked on positively in, in large parts of the country, probably including this area of rural New York where he, this happened, uh, where, where he was, yeah. um, where, where he was initially evaluated. Right. So yeah, what, what do you think total, was the actual, it's total uh, speculation, but the bottom line is, um, if you talk to somebody who is deeply involved in the gun violence debate, they'll know what a red flag law is or an emergency or order of protection, whatever, you know, there's all these different names that are used at different states, which is a problem all by itself because it inhibits education about the issue. If you have 17 different names for the same phenomenon, but if you're somebody who's very educated in the gun rights debate, you know what these are, but I bet you, if you and I went out, and we just grabbed a hundred people off the street and said, do you know what this is? And describe, you know, do you know what a red flag log is or an emergency or order of protection or whatever? How many of them say they know? One, two, three. If you grabbed a random cop, I wonder how many of them would know. So, you know, in a way, what we have is an issue where you do have a system that is more simple than an actual involuntary commitment and adjudication of mental illness, but is almost just as an, as unknown. So uh, there are emergency, you know, there are red flag orders that are implemented. There have they've been uh, implemented many times in Florida. Um, they've been implemented many times in various parts of the country but they are still not known. And, and so that I do think it's possible that the parents and or police knew of the laws and subjective, subjectively believed that his behavior didn't meet the standard. It's also quite possible that they just didn't know or that, um, you know, they hadn't been adequately trained. So, uh, I hope that we'll have at the end of the day, of the day, a very, comprehensive investigation that that dives into this specific point because it's you know it's just speculation now as to the reason yeah and i uh, should note too that the the governor of new york uh hotchel or acting governor i guess uh, right but 
she one of her responses to this now she's obviously she's she's proposed a number of gun control uh, bills that really have nothing to do with what occurred or wouldn't have had any effect on the shooting at the very least but one of her responses was to um, try and reform the state's red flag law by requiring police to file for uh, an extreme risk protection where anytime they have probable cause to do so. And, and she also wants to uh, mandate training on the, the process for uh, police throughout the state um, and, and in, uh, in the state police. So, uh, you know, is that a solution that I mean, is in line with what you, what you'd like to see? I would. I'm a hundred percent for training. There should be total knowledge of the existence of these laws. <laughs> so, um, on the part of the people who have the ability to bring a, uh, a an action under the law. So, I'm one hundred percent in favor of training. I do not like low burdens of proof to secure red flag orders. Um, I don't like a burden of proof that's as low as probable cause. Um, so I'd have to look at the details of what is being proposed because it could be that you are mandated to seek the order on the basis of probable cause, but you can only secure the order upon a showing of clear and convincing evidence or another standard, which that's fine. Um, but you know, the burden of proof is a big is a big part of this you know, a big part of this issue. Right. Let's get into that discussion, actually. Um, so in New York, it's, my understanding is that she wants the police to initiate um, mm -hmm. a request for uh, an order based on any time they have probable cause to do so. Uh, instead of uh, instead of it being a suggestion that they do it, that will be a requirement um, under what she, she wants to change. Um, and then in New York, I'm not as clear on the initial seizure order seems to be a lower standard to grant that but then in order to extend it for a year that's where uh, the clear and convincing st standard comes into play um and and so uh I'm, I'm wondering um what your ideal uh approaches for for red flag laws because this is where a lot of the controversy comes in yeah people, people do not like um the, the idea that a gun seizure could be issued uh through something like an ex parte hearing where the the person who the order is being issued against isn't uh, available to defend themselves yeah um, and that the 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 sort of hearing that you get comes later on if you request it in a lot of cases. Yeah, and and so people have issues with that because they view it as a violation of due process uh, rights, uh, especially on a uh, when when you're talking about something that implicates the Second Amendment and people's Second Amendment rights. So uh, I'm wondering your perspective on all that. Yeah. So um, sometimes ex parte orders are necessary. Uh, they should be a high bar to grant them. And they're completely consistent with due process in the United States. Um, we have ex parte orders that are often entered when it comes to, for example, um, restraining orders related to domestic violence and to threats of domestic violence. And and my ability to access and you know my ability to be with my kids or my wife is every bit as valuable a constitutional right as my ability to own or possess a firearm. In fact. 
the constitutional structure is more protective of my ability to parent my children than it is of my ability to own or possess a firearm. And yet there are circumstances where extreme danger and extreme risk allows for an ex parte order. Now, the thing about ex parte orders under a, a due process regime is that you then get a prompt hearing. So even if there's an ex parte order entered, you get a prompt hearing. And that's the key. If you have an ex parte order, but you can't get a prompt hearing, then that's a serious due process violation. But there are emergency situations and all kinds of circumstances where ex parte orders are entered to, to, to protect human life. And then you follow that up with a prompt hearing. Now, the I guess, problem is uh, you, you I guess you in New York, so just uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> in New York, you, you get a hearing within 10 days after the initial yeah. uh, orders places. Is that the kind of Yeah, that's not, of? I would rather it be, you know, you could have a right to a hearing within 48 hours, say. Uh, I don't think there's a magic time, but when you're dealing with the con a temporary deprivation of a constitutional right, um, then you you should it should be quite prompt. Um, hmm. So you know, my ideal would have a 48 to 72 hour clock where you've got to have um, the the person who the person who's subject to seizure would have a right to be in court. Now, the person who's subject to the seizure may acquiesce to it, may not contest it, and and they can choose not to contest. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I would say we, what we want to do is you're looking at a system where very similar to the kinds of, of risk protection orders or injunctions or, you know, that there's various different names for these uh, for domestic violence protection orders that the kinds of due process and the kinds of of uh, hearing timelines and burdens that exist in that kind of world um, are pr a pretty rough approximation of what can exist in the world of firearms. Because again, you're dealing with constitutional, you're dealing with some of the most important liberty interests in your life when you're dealing with access to your own family. Um, and we have procedures in place, though, where you can't access your own family if you're a threat to your own family. And that can be done before you're adjudicated as a felon. That can be done before you're committed permanently uh, or not permanently, before you're involuntarily committed as a matter of mental health. It fills that gap, right? It fills that gap, but it fills that gap with your um, family connections or your intimate partner connections. Um, I think a similar kind of process is acceptable when you're talking about you're presenting as a as a threat to the public or a threat to yourself. Sure, sure, that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of uh, you know coherent uh, structure there for for how these should be carried out. But but uh, there are obviously other objections beyond the due process ones to these um, uh, to these sorts of laws, and you know. This has become a, a very much a partisan uh, issue at this point. We, we these laws have been passed in 19 states in the District of Columbia, and the only state that passed one with Republicans in control uh, of of the state government is Florida. Florida, in, yeah. In the wake of Parkland, so uh, you know you, you haven't seen that same sort of buy-in from Republicans uh, in red states uh, on the, this concept. You for. The due process concerns, and then also there's, uh, you know, concerns over how broad the uh, 
the 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 pool of people who, who can, can complain right yeah complain is yeah. because in some states i mean in some states i, I wasn't colorado i believe you don't even have to know the person right. personally if i just see um, an instagram post or something yeah yeah and so uh you know there's obviously concerns of abuse of these sorts of orders because even if you do have that uh quick ability to get into court quickly you know within 48 to 72 hours i mean somebody could st- that's still having the police come by to seize your guns is going to be, this is basically a form of harassment if you haven't actually done anything wrong or, or right. made any sort of threats. And so that's, that's another serious concern that people have about these, probably one that I would imagine you share. Uh, yeah, it needs to be relatively narrow, a relatively narrow group of people. So mm-hmm. members of a household, um, school officials, if a, if a person is a student, um, there's some really interesting questions about should this include police? And I, I think when push comes to shove, that's a, that's acceptable that it would include police. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a broad wide ranging, I don't like so-and-so on Twitter and I know that they have guns and then I'm going to make some, you know, the, it's conceivable that can occur. I don't, Maybe it's happened. I don't know if if it has occurred. It's conceivable a, that it could occur. I remember a case where uh, well, it actually happened against a police officer who had uh, shot a suspect, and the suspect's uh, family member had taken out a, a a red flag order against the officer. Um, that's one that sticks out in my mind. Yeah. Uh, although yeah. I, I assume that didn't go very far. No, um, I doubt but, it. But it is that was an example that I re, that I recall. Um, the other issue that I've heard uh, with these sorts of policies is the idea that they are limited in their uh, approach to solving the issue. Right, all they do is require someone to give up their firearms. They don't actually, uh, in most cases, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, they don't actually mandate any sort of mental health intervention or treatment for for the person involved. They're just kind of like, well, they're dangerous, we'll take their guns away, and then I guess hopefully the, they'll get things sorted out right. after that. Well, you know, there's different kinds of circumstances. Um, so I don't think there would be a one-size-fits-all. I, I wouldn't necessarily object to adding a mental health evaluation requirement, but the 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 reality is that um, the on the ground reality is that once an intervention like that occurs, number one, you're immediately you're on law enforcement uh, radar. The family has intervened, and they've done so through a, a method that is a lot less complicated than the uh, the mental health evaluation. And so there is an opportunity. As I said, it's like hitting a pause button. Um, now, the the next layer of it the next layer of reform we need is we need reform of our mental health system overall, but that is much more difficult to do in the context. If you're saying my solution to to mass shootings, where we repeatedly have these red flags is an overhaul of our mental health system. That's so big and so complex. It's not really an immediate response to a, a, a public safety issue. Whereas the red flag laws are a response to a public safety issue. And they're also traditional, they're, they connect with the kind of gun control that the gun rights community has has been much more supportive of than others. And that is 
gun control that is tied to human behavior. Okay, right. so what is a what is a what is a f denying felonies uh, a felon from possessing a firearm? What is that? That's tied to what he did, right? What is it that you know somebody's convicted of a crime of domestic violence? That's tied to what you did. Um, what is it when you're talking about mental, you know, uh, someone who's been involuntarily committed? It's tied to um, something that is a, an illness or that is besetting a person. When you tie gun control away from behavior and towards firearms, the reality is often what you're doing is you're just inhibiting the law-abiding citizen from accessing the weapon while you're doing really nothing at all to the criminal class. Because we know that the criminal class, by and large, um, possess possesses and obtains guns unlawfully. Um, so we know that there is very little, if you're not deterred by felon in possession rules, if you're not deterred by straw purchaser prohibitions, um, how much of an extra deterrent is it to say, um, well, now you have to get a background check at a gun, gun show, right? Um, how much of an extra deterrent, if you have how many millions of AR-15s in circulation? Uh, how many like tens 18. of tens of millions of high of well, I, what's more accurate called standard capacity magazines in circulation? Uh, what you're doing when a lot of these weapon and magazine uh, uh, of weapons that are commonly used for a lawful purpose with a, what you're doing with those kinds of restrictions is you're putting something that's not even really a speed bump in the way of the criminal but you're putting a, an, a bar in the way of the law-abiding citizen. And that, that's where you sort of have a fundamental underlying problem with those kinds of gun control regulations. Whereas the red flag law, it's tied to your behavior. It's tied to what you've been doing. And that makes it, in my mind, much more just. If I have completely complied with the law and I want a, you know, a Glock for my, for, uh, for self-protection and I'm in a state where it's going to have a very restricted capacity magazine and the foreseeable criminal who would come in my home is not going to have a they're going to have a standard capacity magazine. All the law has done is hurt me. But if I have a Glock and I'm uh, engaged in suicidal ideation or engaged in ideation that is tied to, you know, murderous ideation, then I have done something. I have engaged in behavior that is justly alarming. And an, a, a, an adult, an adult who owns a gun should know better. <laughs> this is not asking too much of people. This is not asking too much of people to not say, you know, don't threaten to shoot up your school. That's not asking too much. Um, don't threaten to commit suicide. That's not asking too much. And so, um, it's a reasonable request to people akin to sort of saying the standard gun safety um, rules that, you know, don't point at something you don't want to shoot. Don't put your finger on the trigger until you're going to shoot. I mean, treat every gun as if it's loaded. Don't engage in suicidal ideation. Don't threaten to shoot up. A I mean, these things should be, you know, pretty uh, for a responsible adult gun gun owner. This should be basic stuff. I mean, obviously, I don't know that. Uh, well, first of all, I'm sure you would agree that there, there's a similar pitfall with with red flag laws if, to somebody like this Buffalo shooter who, um, you know, wasn't put off by the fact that he, he knowingly was 
modifying his gun to break state law and, and mm-hmm. all this stuff. But he may have been able to, you know, get around a, a red uh, red flag order and still obtain guns illegally, just as you just talked about there with, uh, you know, the assault weapons bans and, and so forth. Um, and, and presumably, I would imagine you don't believe that this is a, uh, going to solve all of the issues that lead to mass shootings. Uh, no. Right. No. And, and to that point, the RAND Corporation has, uh, and I, I wrote a piece about this actually at, for the dispatch uh, that, that mm-hmm. would be uh, when this podcast comes out so people can go read a little bit more. But uh, the RAND Corporation has looked at at red flag laws. And I think the main takeaway is that there just isn't, there aren't a lot of studies that are uh, yeah. offered conclusive evidence yet on any of these things. But, um, but uh, as much as it's logical to look at the facts of something like what happened in the, the Buffalo shooting, uh, you know, history there and deter and, and conclude that uh, the red flag order could have at the very least made it more difficult for him to carry out his attack. Uh, all we really have right now are anecdotal uh, or anecdotes about how these could prevent shootings or maybe um, I believe there was a, the study. One of the studies did uh, look at the data on how often these are requested for, uh, you know, uh, homicidal threats versus suicidal threats. And um, there are they did find 21 cases in California that were related to potential shootings. Um, so that, you know, there may be some more evidence, but uh, there isn't uh, quite a lot yet on how these actually work in, in practice, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from a, from a scientific standpoint, at least. And what we do know is, uh, there is at least some, I guess, Rand corporation labeled it inconclusive evidence, but there's at least some evidence. They at least found some studies that met their standards for inclusion on suicides, which, mm-hmm. which is, uh, the, what these orders are, used far more often for yeah um and and i mean uh, but of course that i would imagine is is also a something else that would uh, that advocates actively talk about with, the, with these laws i'm sorry uh, that that is a known factor that that's something yeah that, everyone's aware of that these are actually used more often to right. suicides than they are for mass shootings, probably because mass shootings are, are very rare, much, much more rare than yeah. suicides, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's something to keep in mind when we, we talk about these things as, as much as it's logical to think through, you know, if you're on board, if you, if you're uh, over, if you've reconciled the concerns about due process and some of these other things we just talked about, and you look at the situations and think that there there's a logic to how this could have stopped the shooting, there is still some uh, caution that needs to be included because we don't have robust uh, data on how these actually affect uh, the real world. Yeah. And because they're new, they're relatively new, they're relatively unknown. Right. Um, and so, you know, just like with New York, even though that tool was just sitting right there in theory available to be used, um, then 
uh, it's it can't it's it can't be effective if it's not used. And then the other thing mm. that's uh, you know, the other thing that makes it tough is that if you do use a red flag law, you don't ever know that it averted a school shooting. Right. Right. So you can't it is, say it's hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't because say 10 school successful, shootings averted. Yeah. You won't know. You'll never know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That, is, and that so, is one of the problems, I guess, even yeah. with studying it, because it's like, right. I mean, you could look at the rate of mass shootings, but mass shootings are so rare, uh, you know, at least the traditional definition of a mass shooting, which is four people, four or more people killed yeah. in a single act, um, the, the more, uh, the, the definition that's become more prevalent in media as of the last few years, you know, broadens that out much wider to incidents that look nothing like yeah. uh, the Buffalo shooting that, that, you know, is still horrible, but they aren't the same thing. And so it can be difficult to track how effective uh, any policy is going yeah. to be against a mass shooting because because of that. But yeah, uh, and given the you know the differences in gun laws from state to state, it'd really be hard to control for and isolate out even on a longitudinal study, say for ten years or whatever. Um, it'd be really hard to pull out and isolate out just the red flag piece of it. Although I'm sure you can design you can design studies some better than others, and they can get closer to pulling that. Yeah that out but i think we're years but that's where away. a lot of subjectivity comes yeah. subject subjectivity comes into play yeah. in those sorts of stuff that's why a lot of them get rejected by uh rand in, in their reviews in a lot of cases yeah on you're, a lot you're of years studies. away from a better picture i mean frankly yeah yeah because you're talking about usually they're using like synthetic uh you know populations to compare against real populations and you get into some very um, uh, you know, touch in some very shaky grounds uh, by doing a lot of that stuff. But but this actually transitions well into the next part I want to talk about besides red flag laws. Uh, you know, I know we've focused on that because uh, you've you've written a lot about it and advocated for them in the past. But I, I also wanted to get into the other reaction from, you know, President uh, Biden, which was to call for uh, a nationwide assault weapons ban. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the wake of the Buffalo, uh, shooting, can you give us a little bit of your reaction to that? I mean, you hear this every time. Um, I don't, you know, we always go back to the old assault weapons ban and the conclusion that the old assault weapons ban didn't really contribute materially to any reduction in gun violence. Um, but that's, you know, a lot of water, is under the bridge since that time. And quite frankly, a lot of assault weapons, a lot of AR-15s have been sold. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the only, the thing that I would say about uh, AR-15s, the theory in behind it appears to basically be, because there doesn't seem to be any real evidence that a person is more likely to be a mass shooter when they own an AR-15, because uh, there have been a lot of mass shootings that take place with handguns. The yeah, it's actually seems, not the most common weapon, right? Uh, according to the Washington Post's uh, database, right? It's not the most common pistols. weapon for a mass shooting. A pistol still is. Um, the theory seems to be that, and and again, and and AR-15s are not very common at all in in gun violence writ large. They are not also not common in suicides. So, you know, if you're talking about gun violence, the the three big categories of gun violence that worry Americans: suicide. A rifle is not your weapon of choice, typically. Um, 
regular sort of quote unquote regular street crime. Rifle is not the weapon of choice there. It's hard to conceal. Um, more people die to fists and hammers and bats and all of that than to rifles. Yeah. And then mass shootings, the an AR style weapon is not necessarily the weapon of choice in a mass shooting. So the theory seems to be we're going to ban a weapon that is the most popular rifle sold in the United States because in a very, 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 very small percentage of the time, it might be more lethal in specific mass shootings than a handgun would be. And that right, which is questionable me. in and of itself, too. Very questionable. I mean, that I think any gun is more lethal in a mass shooting environment where you're you're killing people who are defenseless. I think the one circumstance where you would could make that uh, case most clearly would be Las Vegas. Sure. Um, very, very, you know, long range. But that's that's a we haven't seen examples like that. Um, and so that is that a reason to ban a weapon that is a weapon of choice, not just for, uh, you know, shooting at a range, recreational use, but it's a weapon of choice for home defense. It is a mm -hmm. weapon that people use and and store in their home to defend their home. And I know or that there are people. Yeah, I know there are people who say, no, it's not a good home defense weapon. And there's controversy in the home defense, self-defense community sure. about it. But there are a lot of folks who are profession, professional, uh, you know, who who there are a lot of folks who is uh, who are professional uh, home and self-defense experts who say that there's a lot to commend an AR-15 mm -hmm. as a home defense weapon. And particularly if you're not somebody who spent a lot of time in the range with a handgun, because a handgun is, is harder to fire accurately than sure, an AR-15. It's a yeah. lot harder to fire accurately. And I think the other big point to make about, uh, president Biden's call for, you know, renewing the federal assault weapons ban, as a reaction to Buffalo, you know, he's explicitly said this was one of the things we could do to prevent shootings like Buffalo. But I mean, New York has an assault weapons ban. It has one that's more strict than what the federal ban was. Uh, and the shooter bought an, a New York legal AR-15. And modified it. And then, yeah, and then he illegally modified it. But yeah. You know, the assault weapons ban had no effect essentially on what he did. Um, and obviously, again, again, like I mentioned with the red flag laws, he knew he was illegally modifying it. He knew what he was doing was illegal. He did not. He did I mean, anyway. I mean, yeah. obviously, all of these they don't care about the illegality of what they're doing with their guns because they're about they, they go to murder people, which. Yeah. There isn't a person on the planet who isn't aware that murdering people is highly illegal. Uh, so, you know, it's just. You know, one of the um, things I, I, you know, when I talk to people who are mystified by my purchase, my, are mystified that a normal human being would own an AR-15. They're just, you know, you in gun rights, you know, in states where gun rights are, are um, well protected and there's a gun culture. You don't have to explain yourself. Of course, mm -hmm. you'd have an AR-15. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and where I live, it's I'd be surprised if I met somebody and they don't have one. Um, 
Right. But a lot of people live in parts of the country and are part of cultures in America. They're, they can't fathom it. They just, they can't, it just doesn't compute. And one of the ways that I describe it is that, um, you know, we have an inherent right of self-defense. This is something that, you know, this is something that's fundamental, fundamentally embedded within the Second Amendment. It would be an unenumerated right under the Ninth Amendment, even if it wasn't in the Second Amendment. This would be, this would be, you know, a right rooted in American history. Um, and so we have a right of self-defense. Well, a right of self-defense is meaningless if it's not a right of effective self-defense. So if somebody has a pistol and you're not allowed to own a handgun, it doesn't do me much good to say, well, but you can punch him, David. You know, that that's that's not thanks for not prosecuting me for punching him, you know. Right. And so it has to be effective self-defense. Well, what does effective self-defense means? It means um, effective against foreseeable threats. Effective against foreseeable threats. Now, a tank isn't a foreseeable threat, right? So um, sort of this idea that that it, uh, it's an, a, a, a complete, um, I, I'm not going to take umbrage, say, a ban against me owning an, a javelin, right? Because a tank is not a foreseeable threat. That I don't need a, that's not really dealing with my right of self-defense. But what is the most foreseeable threat to me? It is a person who would attack me with a semi-automatic firearm. That is the most it's not a six, it's not a six shooter, you know, it's generally probably not a pump action shotgun. It's probably somebody attacking with a semi-automatic firearm with a standard capacity magazine. So if that's the most reasonably foreseeable threat, then I should be able to own a semi-automatic firearm with a standard capacity magazine. And if you're saying I cannot own a semi-automatic firearm with a standard capacity magazine, what you are telling me is I, as a matter of law, should be less able to defend myself than a standard criminal is able to attack me. <laughs> and, mm. and that strikes me as sort of a fundamentally unjust stance. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think obviously a lot of people are going to disagree with you out there in the, the gun control community, but uh, I would imagine a lot of people in the, who are gun owners, We'll certainly agree with you, and it goes back to We agree with each other point. on that. <laughs> oh, certainly, I, I I certainly agree with you personally. But but uh, you know, I think it goes back to your point about um, the preference for uh, restricting individuals who have shown themselves to be uh, dangerous. Uh, I guess there's a there's there's still a debate over uh, how they show themselves to be dangerous, whether it's through uh, you know a conviction in court or through uh, you know, making threats and having that adjudicated through the red flag process. But, uh, but you know, you view that as a more reasonable way of trying to prevent these sorts of attacks um, and horrific shootings, which everybody wants to stop. Nobody and suicides to too. Yep. And suicides. Yeah, suicides as well. Then trying to restrict the hardware, I guess, uh, is your bottom line, right? Bottom line is, the best kind, the best way to wield the law to prevent gun violence is to aim your regulation at human behavior and not. Now, that's not going to say that I think, again, going back to the javelin, the javelin example, I don't care if the law protects my right to own a javelin, but 
and not aim aim your regulation at human behavior. Don't aim aim your regulation at to use the phrase from Heller at um, ordinary gun, guns, common weapons used for lawful purposes or mm. weapons commonly used for lawful purposes. In other words, the standard. And you know, I even hate to use the term as, uh, assault weapon because what we're talking about is a the most common rifle owned in America today, and it's a right. semi-automatic rifle. And so don't aim your regulation at weapons commonly used for a lawful purpose. Aim your regulation in individuals who engage in misconduct. Right. All right. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and give us your view of things, uh, especially in the, the wake of, of what happened and, and give us uh, your perspective on how that could be prevented going forward or how, uh, how this incident could have been stopped. So, uh, yeah, we, we really appreciate it. This, I think your third time on the show. So you're, it could be, you're, uh, you're definitely one of our most frequent guests. And I, do I get I an do, award? Do I get like a jacket or something? Yeah. I, I, I will make up a, a certificate <laughs> and have it sent to you. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. <laughs> but we would love to have you on again in the future as well. Your, your perspective is, is always interesting and, and, uh, valuable, I think. So, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And where where can people read more of your your um, thedispatch.com. Uh go to thedispatch.com, follow me on Twitter at David A. French. And I've also got a newsletter at the Atlantic called The Third Rail. And so any of those places. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're gonna head over to our news update segment now. Uh, and we'll we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks so much. All right, I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. We're gonna Actually, talk about one of your stories this week, Jake. You, you had a piece about uh, Ukraine, right? The top ammo manufacturers, uh, but Remington, Federal, CCI, all, all these companies owned by Vista, they gave a, they announced a new donation, right? Yeah, that's right. So Vista Outdoors brands are back in the news um, doing some fundraising for the Ukraine effort. Um, this time, it's they just announced that they're sending a $100,000 check uh, over to help with humanitarian aid, because as we know, there's been millions upon millions of civilians displaced because of the ongoing war effort. Um, but they they ran a, a T-shirt drive, essentially, um, in support of the Ukrainian effort, it was a big T-shirt with a flag that uh, included Zelensky's uh, famous quote, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. And essentially, mm -hmm. they just said, you know, if you want to support all the proceeds to this are going to go to helping people displaced by the war effort. And this is yeah, less they, than two months, apparently. And this is what they've got so far. So. Yeah, they, they announced that just fairly recently that they were selling these T-shirts as a you know fundraiser. And I guess there was a pretty big response from from customers because, you know, $100,000 off of T-shirts is it's pretty good. I mean, it's obviously not going to change the war effort or anything like that. It's, it's not a huge amount of money, but for a T-shirt drive, it's... It's a fairly, fairly big amount. Yeah, yeah, it's not life changing money, but it is impressive that there was that much public support for this effort. Um, like again, this is all customers voluntarily purchasing a T-shirt for the uh, helping uh, folks that are you know in trouble in Ukraine, and it just comes on the back of a lot of stuff that Vista Outdoors in particular has been fairly active in, in showing support. You, I think you had a piece a couple months ago about them donating millions of rounds of ammunition. Uh, which prompted yeah. other brands to jump in and start donating ammunition. So they've been fairly active in terms of providing aid um, to the the invasion over there, to fighting off the invasion. Yeah, I mean, they, they had a pre-existing, I guess, relationship with the Ukrainian 
military. So they, they were already supplying ammunition to them. Uh, and then they've also donated that extra million rounds. And now they've had this fundraising drive that's, I guess, been successful. And they're, they're donating to the humanitarian side of the, the, the effort in, in Ukraine, not the military side on, in this situation. Right. Yeah, that's right. It goes to this uh, nonprofit, the Ukrainian Crisis Relief Fund, um, basically dedicated towards helping folks that have been either displaced within the country or folks that have been driven out of the country, find shelter, get food, get clothing. Um, so, yeah, all humanitarian uh, stuff is what the, the nonprofit's focused on. Yeah. And like you said at the top, it's important because there's a, going to be a lot of people who need that aid. Uh, right. Certainly a lot more than $100,000 worth of it. But, but uh, you know, there's millions of people still displaced in Ukraine. And that war is obviously not over. There's sort of dragging on as Russia tries to um, capture the, uh, the western sections of the country uh, and, and hold on to control of that as the Ukrainians try to push back. So the war certainly seems like it's probably going to drag on for quite a while there. Uh, and you're not going to see a quick resolution anytime soon because, the, frankly, the Ukrainians fought off this, the quick invasion. Uh, it didn't work. And so now Russia has shifted tactics to a uh, more drawn out sort of effort. And um, But, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how well Remington and Federal and, and these other brands have done in, in raising money through a you know, this t-shirt drive. Uh, but we also have some other uh, industry news that, you know, we wanted to touch on a little bit here too, which is uh, there's a new ATF report, right? Ben uh, Marquis, one of our new writers, uh, wrote this up for us. Uh, apparently, the industry has grown tremendously over the last two decades. Uh, this is a new report covers the years between 2000 and 2020, and it shows um, incredible growth in the industry. Uh, I think he, he puts, um, he says in the piece that the report revealed domestically manufactured firearms have increased by 187%, firearms in exported from the US uh, by 240%, and firearms imported to the US by 350%. So. Uh, you know, over two decades, the industry has just taken off. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's another piece of information that uh, in this overall story we've been covering for months here at The Reload, right, with the, the growth in gun ownership. You've written a number of stories about that as well. Right, Jake, where we've seen all these signs that more people are buying more guns than ever before. Yeah, no, this is, like you said, it's just an explosion in the firearms industry. It's the fact that domestic manufacturing is up, imports are up, exports are up. Uh, so the firearms industry's fingerprints are all over uh, the, the commerce and weapons right now. This, <clears throat> this stat right here is pretty interesting just in terms of domestic manufacturing. In 2000, when the beginning of the report started, 3.9 million firearms were produced. Um, and up to 2020, when the report ends, they had 11.3 million um, so just about it, what, yeah. an 8 million firearm jump annually. Um, yeah. And that, that's, crazy. uh, you know, obviously population has grown over the same time period, right. of course, uh, this is important to keep in mind, but, uh, as Ben pointed out here, 
he, you know, he did the math. And the, so in 2000, there were 1,397 new guns per 100,000 Americans. Uh, by 2020, it was 3,410 per 100,000. So that's, that's, so, uh, that's a lot. Right. <laughs> so a big accounting for population growth, it's still a big, a big boom in domestic yeah. firearms manufacturing for sure. Right. Um, as you said, it ties in kind of to the trends we've been looking at, just the growth of shooting sports, the growth of interest in owning firearms. Um, this is coincides with the same time period where you started to see the majority of folks when they would answer polls say, hey, I'm looking to get a gun for protection. It overtook uh, a lot of the other previously stated reasons, whether it was sport or hunting. Um, so just a, a massive boom. It, is, it also coincided with the the carry revolution too during these two yeah. decades. So all these things sort of this confluence of factors and you, you see it in the data, what's happened with the firearms industry responding to those changes uh, among right. the general population. Yeah, the, the ATF even comments in this report that uh, pistols overtook long guns, you know, rifles and shotguns in terms of their popularity. You know, starting around 2009, which is also when the Supreme Court had um, ruled on two cases directly impacting the ownership of handguns, right? right. Heller and McDonald, which uh, found that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. But that was specifically in the context of handgun ownership, right? D.C. Right. had a total ban on handgun ownership. Chicago had a total ban on handgun ownership. And those two cases... Uh, went in favor of gun rights activists, and then more people started buying handguns. Uh, so it's probably no coincidence there. And and yeah, that then those things that you just mentioned as well—the concealed carry revolution, the the um, the the increase in uh, ownership among new demographics, right? There's something that we've been tracking closely in more recent years, right? right. That's sort of taken off the last decade. Uh, and especially the last two years. And I think that that comes into play a little bit in this report. Obviously, this stops at 2020, so it uh, doesn't include the last two years or 2021 and 2022, at least. Right. And uh, this has probably been even even more of an impact because right. gun sales have not uh, did not immediately fall off a cliff in, in 2021. So um, it, it's interesting to look at how that has progressed and how it impacts not only culture, but politics, right? I mean, obviously that's our focus here at The Reload and these things do have a, a significant impact, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't have that that concealed carry revolution that you just mentioned, uh, these changes in laws that have taken us from a time when concealed carry was completely outlawed in almost every state to a time where it's legal in every state. And most states now don't even require a permit to practice concealed carry if you're, you know, not a prohibited person, right? If right. you can legally own a gun in most states now, you can legally carry it without having to obtain a permit first. And, you know, and you see this in polling as well. This is something that you've written a lot about in recent months. The polling trends have moved away from gun control right, uh, and towards, um, you know, less restrictive gun laws. So I think this is all part of that same trend. This is a macro trend. This is something that we are following as, as the 
the big change in American culture and politics when it comes to guns. Sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you, you pointed out the fact that this could have serious ramifications on politics going forward. Like you said, we've already kind of seen some in indications just based on polling. <clears throat> but it's almost a cliche at this point to say politics is downstream from culture. But as the culture shifts in such a way, clearly, you know, firearms manufacturing doesn't just tool up like this because there's no demand. Clearly, they're responding to right. demand. And as the culture shifted um, in all the ways you laid out in terms of concealed carry and personal protection, et cetera, I think that could have some very serious effects on the way we treat gun politics going forward. Um, you're already starting to see that now. There's not a lot of movement at the federal level. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of appetite, despite what, you know, there's sometimes some statements in favor of gun control, but there's really no serious push for gun control at the moment. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this will be an interesting thing to watch for sure going forward. Yeah, I think so. Um you know, I think the other trend that's interesting is it's not just more people buying guns, although clearly we've seen that. It, it does seem as though more people are, are buying more guns. Right. Uh, that, that having more than one gun is becoming more common uh, among Americans. That that would be something to justify this because we didn't see a, you know, a threefold increase in gun ownership over this period uh, necessarily. But but we did see an increase in manufacturing to that degree. Sure. Uh, so it's it's interesting the the way that the industry has um, been able to get people to buy more than one gun uh, or, you, you know, that, that uh, collecting has become a more popular thing to do with firearms. Uh, sure. There's more perhaps a wider variety of firearms available now, too, for all sorts yeah. of different purposes than there were in previous times um, that, that probably plays into it. I'm sure culture plays into that as well. There's a lot of interesting things at play. Um, uh, you know, we, we've certainly doesn't, I, I think you'll get uh, people on the, the gun control side of things will try to explain away these numbers by saying it's all just uh, super buyers, I think is what they call them. Um, you know, it's just small number of people buying way more guns than you than before, but I don't think that matches with the evidence we've seen sure. the last several years. Uh, it's certainly been an increase in gun ownership as well. It's just also at the same time, you're seeing uh, more gun owners buying more guns in addition to more people overall owning guns. No, that's so, right. you know, that, that's the meta narrative that we're, we're trying to follow here. That's, that's what underlines everything else going on in in gun politics, I think. And so this is another part. There's more in this report. I think we're going to have pieces on it uh, soon. And then there's uh, this is actually only the first of four of these reports that the ATF is going to put out. So um, we'll, we'll have more details from that. Get moving forward here. Yep. But, and uh, if you want to follow those reports, uh, head on over to the reload.com. Uh, you know, if you want to support the kind of journalism we do, this type of reporting, the podcast, um, go ahead and consider becoming a member because we really couldn't do any of this without the support of our members. Um, yep. uh, we have a ton of different membership options. We've got monthly memberships, yearly memberships. And if you're feeling really generous, we even have lifetime memberships. Um, Correct. You get all sorts of exclusive posts. You get this podcast early. You get a chance to be on the podcast. Um, yeah, we want to. I think I'm gonna, hopefully we'll have another member come on soon. Yeah. Uh, although I think we're going to do, I think we would try to do a and a episode again. Okay. Soon, That'd be which, great. which members are the ones who get to ask the questions as well. So, right. uh, you know, that, that's another reason to 
become a member at the reload, you can send in your questions. I think we'll do an NRA Q&A episode next week because that's the annual meeting is coming up next week. Uh, Also, the the it seems the ATF director nominees hearing is also going to be next week. So it'll be a busy week. Sure. For sure. But uh, but yeah, so uh, we'll we'll do an NRA Q&A episode next week where members can send in their questions and we'll we'll try to answer them the best we can. But, if you want to participate, yeah. make sure you join ahead of time. Absolutely. But that's all we've got for this week. Please, uh, if you've made it this far in the episode, uh, why don't you rate the, the show and give us a little review? You know, we like to hear from, from our members, hear from our listeners about how we're doing and things we can improve and what they like and so forth. So we, I do read all those reviews and uh, try to adjust accordingly. <laughs> so uh, please, please uh, help us out by leaving a review or rating. Anyway, we will see you guys again next week.